Hello, my name is Meg. Welcome to the Unedited Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. So glad to have you here. The goal of this podcast is to help you both establish and enjoy the habit of daily Bible reading and prayer. About 20 years ago, at a very low spot in my life, I was convicted to begin this discipline and looked up years down the road and saw that God had used this discipline to do an incredible work in my life. And I believe that if you will choose to daily get your heart into the Word of God and into the presence of God, you will look up years down the road and you will find yourself changed, transformed, and that God will have healed vast places of your soul. So again, thank you for being here with me today. As mentioned on the last episode, there's going to be two segments to each episode of this podcast. In the beginning of the episode, I'm going to share a few tips and tricks um, for establishing this habit, just things that I've learned along the way. Really, I had to just kind of gut it out when I began. I didn't have a lot of resources. I'm sure there were resources, but I wasn't aware of them and just sort of learned by doing it. And I believe I mentioned it on the last episode, but this is a discipline and you will just do it. It's like any other discipline you begin in your life. But I would like to just share some things that might help you and inspire you to do it and to engage this habit in your life. Also, I wanted to briefly mention that I did change up the order of the episodes from what I had mentioned um, when I recorded a few months ago, just as I was working on the list of things that I was going to discuss in upcoming episodes, I realized that sharing tips and tricks on how to establish a habit is only valuable if you know why the habit is valuable and why you would want to incorporate it in your life. And so just very briefly this morning, I want to go over a list of reasons why we read the Bible. These are very basic. This is not an exhaustive list, but Again, I think it's important to understand the whys of something and why we should do something or why something has value. And so very quickly, I'm going to go through this list. First and foremost, the Bible is how we find salvation. We as humans all need salvation from sin. The Bible is the story of redemption. It is a story of God creating man for relationship, man falling from that relationship through sin. Sin is going against the will of God, the design of God, the plan of God. And that sin bringing a separation from God, from the presence of God that required redemption for humanity. And the whole rest of the Bible is the story of God redeeming mankind back to himself. So again, the Bible is first and foremost where we find out how to be saved. Secondly, the Bible is where we find out how to live our lives after we're saved. The New Testament is primarily made up of books that were written to churches, instructing them how to live their lives after they were Christians, how they should conduct themselves in business, how they should conduct themselves in relationships, how they should conduct themselves when it came to treatment of enemies and treatment of those who were over them in authority. There's a lot of instruction. We need a guidebook for our lives, and that really is what the Bible is following salvation. Thirdly, the Bible is food for our souls. So, so, so many people live their spiritual lives without eating any food. The Word of God is food for your spirit. Moses said in the Old Testament, and Jesus actually quoted him in the Gospels, 
um, said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth out of the mouth of God. If we lived our physical lives with no food, we would not get very far. And the same can be said of our, said of our spiritual lives. If we live without ingesting any food, we truly will not make it very far. Fourthly, the word of God gives direction, peace, comfort, hope, counsel, strength. The word of God is our refuge. I could go on with a list of words of things that the word of God becomes to us. The Bible literally has become my best friend. When I say the word of God is a refuge, I could not tell you what that means to me. I have run to the word of God as a refuge time and time again and found comfort and hope and counsel from those pages. Fifthly, the word of God, the Bible, is how we get to know God. I want Sir Elizabeth Elliot say, if we are ever going to get to know Jesus Christ, we are going to get to know him on the black and white pages of his word. And it is through the stories of the Bible that we see the character and the heartbeat of God on display. We see his mercy and we see his judgment. We see his love. We see so many aspects and elements of who he is at the core and what he is about. And so again, if we are ever going to get to know him, we're going to get to know him in his word. Sixthly, I am, is that a word? Sixthly? I don't know. I think I made it up. But sixthly, and I am incredibly passionate about this particular point, the word of God heals broken hearts. That is one of the great promises of the word. It says that he heals the broken in heart and binds up their wounds. We live in a world that is littered with broken hearts. I know the pain of a broken heart. And I know the healing of the word of God. And it is still true what it says in Psalms. He sent his word and healed them. The word of God is balm and bandage. There is something that cannot be reproduced through any other method or means. There is no medication. There is no counseling session that can replicate the healing power of the word of God. Again, these things have their place. But I believe so passionately that it is the word of God that heals the deep, broken places of our souls. So again, this is not really an exhaustive list, but I just wanted to give you a few key reasons why you would want to read the word of God. If this is not a habit that you are currently engaged in or maybe have just done sporadically, those are a few reasons maybe to prompt you to dig into the Bible a little bit more deeply Also, just on an intellectual, historical, literature level, the Bible is an incredible book. The proofs for the Word of God, both archaeologically, um, through history, are deep. There's many proofs for the validity of the Bible, and it is the bestseller of all time. So you really should get into it. I would greatly encourage you to. Today, I'm going to share a little entry called... Every story needs an antagonist, and I'm probably wrong when I say little entry because this one is a little bit long. Please bear in mind that the entries I'm going to share on this podcast are just as they were written on my journal pages. This particular entry I wrote in one morning. Sometimes I write pieces over a few days or even a week, Um, but this one just kind of all came together in the same day, and so I would like to share this unedited entry, Every Story needs an antagonist. Since I've been in the story of David and Goliath, 
for the last month or so, one of the things that has consistently stuck out in my mind is this little thought. Goliath was killed with his own sword. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and smote the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheaf thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. The very thing that Goliath had intended to plunge through David became the thing that ended his own life and brought final victory to David and Israel. When Goliath daily taunted God's people with send me a man that we may fight, it was an invitation to hand-to-hand, man-to-man combat that he was sure to win. Goliath never considered that he'd be wiped out with his own weapon, but that is precisely what happened. As I was driving yesterday, other Bible stories began to spin off the central thought that the enemy was defeated with his own weapon. After Goliath, Haman came to mind. He was the nemesis of God's people when they were in exile. He specifically directs his hatred toward one man, Mordecai, who refuses to bow to him. The hatred Haman has causes him to construct a gallows 75 feet tall and concoct a plan to publicly hang Mordecai on it. But through a very interesting series of events, we see that the end of the story goes like this. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. What he had intended for the destruction of a child of God precipitated his own demise. After Haman, Pharaoh came to mind. Just after he had finally consented and conceded to allow the children of Israel to leave Egypt, God hardens his heart. In Exodus 14:5, Pharaoh asks, "Why have you done this that we have let or why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us?" He realizes he has just lost his workforce. The story goes on that he made ready his chariot and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. Chariots in Egypt were costly and used by nobility and royalty. They were a key part of the military might of Egypt. Wikipedia says, chariots are thought to have been used as a weapon. The word chariot or chariots is used 10 times in Exodus chapter 14. Pharaoh thought for sure that his technology and infantry would overtake God's people. No questions asked. He was hands down, armed and equipped beyond the Israelites. He is so convinced and assured of victory that he is willing to pursue the Israelite masses through the parted Red Sea. This is pretty crazy. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. That's Exodus 14:22. Pharaoh has just lived through the trauma and tragedy of the plagues. He has just lost his son as the death angel passed over his palace. He has just been held at bay by a pillar of dark clouds so the children of Israel could pass through the walled-off sea. He has firsthand witnessed the vengeance and grandeur of God, yet he is dauntless in his pursuit. He trusts his military might will outrun and overtake his previous slaves. But the story goes on. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, and all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen And it came to pass that in the morning, watch, the Lord looked into the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels that they drave them heavily. 
The Egyptians recognize that the Lord is fighting for Israel and decide to turn around. But it's too late. Their technological advances, their trusted chariots, will get them nowhere. The very thing that they thought ensured the defeat of Israel only ensured their destruction. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not one. The chariots the Egyptians trusted became the dead weight that saw them drowned. Exodus 14.30 says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. After Pharaoh, Joseph's brothers came to mind. I am running out of time, but briefly, the one-way ticket to Egypt that they purchased for Joseph became the ticket to the fulfillment of his dreams. They hated him for his dreams, and in their evil scheming had said, We will see what will become of his dreams. As they watched him disappear over the desert horizon, chained behind a Midianite caravan, they assumed that was the end of their despised brother and his dreams. They thought that was the last image they would have of him. Little did they know that the trip to Egypt was part of a divine plan, not only the path to Joseph's destiny, but that they had actually paved the way for the preservation of their entire family. Years later, after enduring trauma and tragedy, Joseph looked at his brothers and boldly and tenderly stated, You thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Their plot was God's plan. There are many other stories like this in scripture where Satan's plans and Satan's weapons become the very thing that destroy and destruct his intended purpose. One final story is ringing in my ears. Satan comes to mind. He hated Jesus. Satan recognized the Messiah. He knew who Jesus was. So, like so many he had worked through before, he began to devise a scheme for his destruction. He worked with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the high priests, and Judas. He used the passiveness of Pilate as he gave into the chance of the tumultuous crowd, crucify him, crucify him. He formulated a team and a plot to end the ministry and life of Jesus. He assembled Roman soldiers and spikes and mallets and a crown of thorns. He watched with glee as he saw Jesus beaten and marred to the point he was barely recognizable. He was an overjoyed onlooker as the cross was drugged through Jerusalem streets and he heard the sound of the nails and the cries of a brutalized man ring in the crowd's ears. He saw the crudely constructed cross dropped into place and Jesus' broken body convulsed with pain. He may have snarled with a chilling laugh as Jesus cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it is finished. He assumes he's won as Jesus' side is pierced, as Jesus' broken, lifeless body is tenderly removed from the cross by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, as Jesus is wrapped in a linen cloth and placed in a borrowed tomb. Satan was certainly drunk on his fulfilled destruction. It was pure elation and exhilaration as the stone was rolled in front of that grave and a guard was placed at its entrance. 
The cross, the tomb, what a plan. Finalized and finished, so he assumed. What he did not know was that the cross he'd constructed would be the very thing that would defeat him once and for all. The precious blood of Jesus, spilled and poured out to the delight of Satan, became the price paid for salvation. The stone in front of the tomb had no final epitaph because the story was not over. The cross became the unfolding of the divine plan. The tomb was the final blow in Satan's ultimate defeat. Jesus was down, but he was not out. Once again, we see that Satan was destroyed by his own devices. His weaponry, his plan, his tactics and schemes were turned and used on him. It was at the cross that the very first prophecy was fulfilled. It shall bruise thy head, as it says in Genesis 3.15. And it was at the cross and the empty tomb that years of prophecy were culminated. It was there that victory was won for everyone. It was in those following days that the words of Joseph, hundreds of years before, could be heard echoing through the ages of time. You thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Satan was defeated by his own evil scheme. Goliath was killed with his own sword. Haman was hung on his own gallows. Pharaoh was drowned in his own chariot. Joseph's brothers bowed because of their sending Joseph to Egypt. Satan finished himself off at the cross and the tomb. Every story needs an antagonist, and every story needs a plot line. When the enemy of your soul shows up with a curveball to kill you, to finish you off, just know he and the enemies of God's people have a long history of being defeated by their own devices. The thing that should destroy you will be, if you allow it, the very thing that God will use to fulfill his purpose in your life. No loss, no tragedy, no unexpected trial, no failure, no diagnosis can stop God's plan for your life. Don't give up. It might be a bumpy road or a stormy night, but trust that God is at work, strengthening and shaping you by Satan's intended destruction. I borrow the words of Isaiah in closing. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of, is of me, saith the Lord. The enemy will not win. Every story needs an antagonist. Obviously, there are caveats to this concept. We all face hardship and tragedy in life, and we have the option in those times to grow bitter, to grow better. It is going to be our response to the challenges of our lives that allows God to work all things together for good. Our attitude, our willingness to repent, our willingness to forgive are all factors in God's ability to rewrite the storyline and his ability to reroute the tactics and the work of the enemy. If we will do those things, if we will forgive, if we will walk in repentance, if we will walk in humility, if we will stand on the word of God, claim the promises of God, and obey the word of God, God will take any issue, any struggle, any weapon, and use it to advance his purpose in your life and use it as a tool for growth. 
Thank you so much for joining me for this journey. I look forward to meeting up with you again next Friday. If you have any questions or to download a typed or handwritten transcript of today's entry, you can visit megunedited.com. For now, go grab your Bible and your journal. Maybe you want to research one of these stories. Maybe you want to read the story of Esther. It's in the book of Esther. Maybe you want to read the story of Joseph. It begins in Genesis chapter 37 and goes all the way through Genesis 50. Maybe one of the other stories that we talked about today. Any single one of them has incredible depth and beauty, and you would really learn a lot by digging into one of those stories. I'm looking forward to the power of this habit in your life. This is unedited. This is for you. Happy Friday.